Hello and welcome to another episode of What the Fintech, the podcast from the team behind Fintech Futures and the Banking Technology Magazine. I'm Alex Hamilton, Deputy Editor at Fintech Futures, and joining me today are Sharon Kamathi, Editor at Fintech Futures. Hey! And Sean Hunter, Chief Information Officer at Oak North. Hi there. As in the last two episodes, we are recording this show separately while in lockdown, transmitting from the safety of our own homes. Uh, we'll be chatting with Sean about partnerships in the fintech industry in just a minute. Uh, but first, as per usual, we've all arrived today with some big numbers from the past week or so to talk about. Um, Sean, as, as our guest this week, perhaps you'd, you'd like to lead us off with, I think, what is the biggest number this week? Um, so I think the biggest number this week has been the launch of 1.25 billion coronavirus future fund uh, for startups. Um, you know, the government is obviously trying to start help various types of startup companies um, and with various types of funding. And uh, we think it's going to be very interesting to read the finer detail when it finally gets announced. Um, you know, is this all about investment in R&D? Um, and how does it affect, you know, different types of fintechs and so on? Um, but we think it's, you know, it's a good start. Hey, yeah, I completely agree. It is a good start. Um, the gesture is really nice. Um, but as you mentioned, it is a matter of clarity that might be required for this to work, much like all the other government initiatives we've seen. Um, there's definitely some confusion about the confusion, the future funds convertible bonds um, and how these will work in practice. As it stated that these um, loans, sorry, not bonds, the loans will be converted to equity if not repaid. So then some people now believe that they would be an option to repay the loan instead of having it convert to equity. But then what happens if they go bust in between? So there's a little bit of clarity that was required there, even though their term sheet is out. Um, there's still some questions around it. And there's also some phrasing concerns. So what does count as an innovative startup? Um, they also say that it ranges from tech to life sciences. So would they be prioritizing one above the other, especially now? Um, another concern that I've also seen around is that it might exacerbate the inequality of fundraising opportunities in this fintech industry uh, as black and ethnic minority or female-led startups tend to struggle with VC funding. But this will only apply to those essentially well-funded or VC-funded companies. So it seems like they'll just keep benefiting the most from all of this um, instead of actually targeting those people or companies as well that are struggling to, to keep afloat because they haven't received any VC funding. Um, what about you, Alex? What, what do you think? Oh, it seems like, Sean, you have something as well to, to add to it. Yeah, I was just going to agree to you about the exacerbating the potential inequality in funding and in that being a concern. I think with a lot of different government programs, not just in the UK, but in the US, the, the sort of headline announcement is often, you know, a little bit lacking in detail. And some of those details end up being very, very important if you want to get the funding program to work in the way that you that you want. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree. I think the uh one of the major things that symbolizes the coronavirus pandemic in general and the reaction to it is that uh, a lot of stuff is, I mean, the, the, the fund was announced after a, a few weeks of pressure on the government. And I felt like the, you can feel that pressure in the way that it was announced and the fact that uh, a lot of questions are still being asked and have yet to be answered. Uh, and I feel that 
perhaps we'll see a bit more clarity in the next few weeks. And I, I think that it's something that definitely needs to be drilled down to a lot further because obviously the, the startup scene in London and the UK is one of you know its major draws and it's a major part of our, our digital economy. So I, I think it's definitely something that, that needs to be worked on a little bit further. But I, I also have a little bit of sympathy in trying to provide um, the relief that's necessary uh, on in such a short space of time when pretty much every sector in the country is being affected by by what's going on right now. Yeah, I, I really agree. Hopefully there will be a bit more clarity on this topic later on. I mean, they said that it's going to be released uh, in May. Uh, so hopefully we'll find out soon enough. Um, and I know that you've also got a, a big story on your part too for some funding. Yes. So uh, my number not quite as hefty as the one that Sean's brought. I think it's around half, in fact. Uh, $600 million is the amount of funding that e-commerce payments firm, um, I mean, perhaps we could call them giant now, Stripe has received. Uh, the figure is an extension of its uh, $250 million Series G. Yep, that's you heard that right. That's a Series G funding round from last year. Uh, it brings its total funding up to... $1.6 billion raised over 12 rounds and its valuation is now at $36 billion. Um, the company announced alongside the funding that it's now got $2 billion on its balance sheet. Loads of numbers coming out. Um, it's a huge round and I think it's it's a pretty big indicator and signpost as to where the digital economy is moving. I mean, Stripe arrived. It was launched at a time when the market was was payments market was fragmented and complex, especially for small and medium businesses. And it offered a very simple solution. And I think during the current climate, the use cases for the firm just appear to, to keep multiplying as well as companies that, that have never traditionally been digital in how they operate um, payments-wise and transactions-wise, uh, move online and look for a simple way of crossing the boundary. Um there have been plenty of rumors about uh, Stripe as well, the fact they might be setting up for a potential IPO. Um, I imagine perhaps now might not be the right time. But uh, as I said, it, it's it's a huge sum to raise. And I think it's a, an indicator of how far um, a tech solution, when it's uh, simple and easy to use, can actually go. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Like the six hundred million should definitely not be ignored because that's quite a big sum. Um, and we've seen a few other paytech firms actually uh, receive some funding this month. So there was Airwallex who raised one hundred and sixty million earlier this month. So did Flywire, Bypay, Provise, and a lot more. It seems like VCs and others are really betting in on these paytechs working. I suppose because we're all under a lockdown, and you know we're constantly trying to look for ways to digitize. Uh, certain processes and it seems like paytech firms are definitely the ones that are out there uh putting themselves forward so maybe that's what what's attracting investors what do you think about that then alex yeah i, I think it's um uh, pay, payments and paytech appears to be the the, the one sector that is going to benefit the most um obviously everything is moving online to e-commerce right now uh but i think it, it's it's encouraging that the funding is still occurring there's still uh investments happening despite everything that's going on and i think uh i was speaking to someone this morning in fact about just the fact that it's hard not to talk about any story without COVID-19 getting involved, but it is, it's a, it's a massive change in the way we do things, probably the biggest change since the crisis. And it, it's going it, to, it's sort of forcing people who may have been thinking about going digital, especially if you look at incumbent technology firms or even the incumbent banks, 
now's the time. Basically, you, you, <laughs> there's no better time than now to to get moving. I think the companies that saw that, not necessarily the Cassandras, but they were they were a few years ago getting ready for when things became more digital. You know, they they were prepared, and and now I think a lot of companies are going to be rushing t- because they feel they may have missed the boat, at, and and this is the time that they should have been preparing for. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. That's definitely something that we're saying. And how about you, Sean? Is there anything that you wish to add on the story? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really interesting. As as Alex said, lots of businesses that never really imagined themselves as being a sort of B2C business are now finding themselves needing to take payments from consumers. Um, so you've got people like, you know, restaurant suppliers all of a sudden looking for for consumers to buy products from them because they they need to get them kind of all out of their warehouses and sold and so on because the restaurants are shut. And so all of a sudden they need a payment solution that they never thought they would need before. Um, and I think the, the whole essence of the digital economy, if it has any value, is that it adds this agility and ability for, of businesses to kind of pivot and adopt and change and so on. Um, and so it's definitely, the crisis definitely accelerated a lot of those types of initiatives that we see. Also, the government programs have also accelerated um, the adoption of digital technologies by some incumbent banks, because if you take the US, for example, the PPP program um, that the government uh, paycheck protection program, as it's called, you know, lots of banks have tried to process things manually, like they've always done with these loans, but the volume is simply too great. And so everyone, there's a huge appetite for digital solutions. Excellent. Well, I, again, I said that it's hard to do a podcast these days without, without COVID-19 touching pretty much every aspect of it. But uh, Sharon, you've got, a, you've got a pretty interesting story from um, how Revolut's reacting uh, to the crisis. Yeah, it seems like coronavirus is definitely affecting sort of everything and loads of different areas and pockets of the industry. So with Revolut, their staff was told that they can swap their pay for shares in the Challenger Bank. So my number is actually a pound because they were saying that you can swap a pound of their salary for every two pounds of share options in the company. Um, And this is usually quite normal for startup companies. Um, I, I used to watch Silicon Valley and they did have shares in the company, like those really early employees uh, doing all the grunt work, not receiving any salary. And then boom, during the IPO, there was a nice payout. Now, it's it's probably a good thing to have in the back pocket, but um, I wouldn't say that I would then completely swap out my salary for share options because it's a much riskier item. I mean, if you all of a sudden were in a business where it's gone bust, then the share options pretty much equal nothing. <laughs> so you, you'd be kind of stuck either way by not having a salary or risking it all for a prospective payout that you might not even get. So what do you guys think about it? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a like you said, it, it's a well-worn tactic for startups, especially in the early stages to, for, to give people the option of foregoing a salary to get shares in the company on the benefit, you know, you work hard, you help the company get better, you're going to get more money out of your share. Um, I mean, the interesting thing for me, and I think we're seeing different reactions from a lot of the uh, the digital banks uh, to the crisis. And it's interesting because Revolut's not exactly a uh, struggling uh, challenger bank. It's, it's very well capitalized and it's very well diversified. Um, it's, you know, we, we've spoken before on this podcast about how well diversified they are in the products that they offer and the fact that they have so many avenues 
from which to do well. So I think it's it's a very interesting move. Um, and to be honest, I mean, I mean, it it's it for, for me. I don't think either I something I'd be I'd be up for. And I mean, I mean, at Informa we have a we have a share match program, but I'm not sure if I'd forgive my forgive forgo my entire salary <laughs> in the event. <laughs> yeah. That's a pretty risky, ballsy move right there, yeah. <laughs> especially at this time. How about you, Sean? Do you think that that might ever happen in Oak North? Would that be an option? So so we, whenever we, we've only done it a few times, but whenever we raise money, we uh, allow employees to participate. And so employees can buy in. Um, we don't do it as a sort of salary forgiveness option or whatever you might call it. Um, but we, we allow employees to participate in any kind of funding round. I think, you know, the good side of that is it creates a tremendous alignment of interest between employees. They feel like they're part of the success of the company and then they're benefiting from the success of the company in the future. Um, but obviously, as you said, we, we would only encourage it in a sort of responsible way, not, you know, for going betting your entire salary essentially on the future of the company because that is kind of risky. Okay, we now head into the main part of the podcast, the creme de la creme, the inciting incident. Uh, we're going to be talking with Sean about partnerships. Uh, in recent times, we've seen the narrative in the financial services industry shift quite dramatically from competition, lunch eating, etc., to to one of collaboration and a sort of love in cooperation. But we uh, we have to ask if everything is as rosy as it seems for, for those tie ups. But first, it, it it would be remiss of us uh, not to ask you, Sean, as as you're here from Oak North, the the lending arm of of uh, UK challenger Oak North Bank. You know, you, you, those firms are quite closely aligned. How have your two sides of the same coin reacted to the, to the COVID nineteen crisis on both the, the lending and the banking side? Yeah. So, I mean, firstly, we're lucky in the sense that, you know, we're profitable. And so we've been, that has enabled us to focus on our core mission of executing. And we haven't had to make some of the really tough decisions that some other firms have had to make, like furloughing staff and delaying projects and so on. If anything, you know, the the focus has been on moving as fast as we can to help our clients, both as a lender and as a platform who works with lenders. Um, so in the UK, the first step we took as a bank was develop what we called a COVID vulnerability rating, which was to go through our entire book and look at each borrower and to what extent the the crisis was impacting them. And we started off looking at supply chain focus, um, you know, supply chain impact in China, because that's how the crisis started. And then as the crisis evolved, we've been looking at the effect of three, six, nine months shutdowns in the economy on different companies, how badly they'd be affected and and how quickly they would recover after the crisis. And that has allowed us to build out a very detailed picture of stress scenarios for all these different subsectors and so on. And we use that framework to help all of our businesses. So we identified our clients that are eligible for certain government programs or are under particular stress. And we actively reached out to them first so that we can you know, help them and then, you know, the, the goal is to obviously get those borrowers on a good footing so that they can recover when the economy recovers. And then as a platform, 
you know, that gave us the toolkit we need to go and work with banks around the world on this exact same problem. So, you know, help them in the US on the US government PPP and Main Street lending programs, which are very about, you know, helping with the impact of COVID on on various businesses. Um, and elsewhere, just helping, you know, lenders with, identify which borrowers are most affected and so on. And so that's really, really helped us. Um, and uh, yeah, it's it's been very, very tough, but it's actually, you know, so far, um, we've been able to have a tremendous impact. Interesting. And what sort of impact do you see then partnerships having during this crisis? Do you think that it's uh, an area for, for some sort of collaboration moving forward? Um, do you think that they'll be actually turning to like innovative, different types of partnerships that we might see across the whole fintech spectrum during this crisis? Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things, uh, and I'm going to get in a plug, but uh, some time ago, I wrote a chapter for a, a reg tech book for Wiley Press. And my chapter was literally about partnerships and how fintechs can partnership partner with banks. And, and I think a lot of it has turned out to be true that, you know, banks look to fintechs to provide an injection of dynamism and innovation and, and you know, bring in the latest and greatest of technology and so on, because banks aren't that great at experimenting at those things. Um, but obviously banks have the customer relationships, they have the regulatory relationships and so on, the licenses and all those good things. So there's a very good symbiotic relationship that can happen between a fintech and a bank. Um, what banks are not that great at is is developing things themselves. And so, but they have been forced to become great at actually integrating lots and lots of different things because they have had to live with a very complex IT ecosystem and so on. And so we think partnerships in general are, you know, on the upswing uh, across the financial services industry. And then, you know, in this time of crisis, it's even accelerated because we've had a number of banks who, for example, in the two government programs, the PPP came first, they, they sort of threw manual effort at PPP. They've had staff working around the clock to try and process loans and everything. Um, and you've even got people, you know, who've got C titles at really large banks, heads of credit, heads of commercial lending, chief risk officer, processing loan applications, you know, just to try and cope with the demand. It's so large. And then, so then the Main Street program, which is a new program, which has come out, they, they've just got this tremendous fatigue. They're kind of exhausted. They can't do it themselves. They have to have partners. And so that's led even some people who previously might not have been open to it to actually be open to it. And, and so, um, yeah, we think that's a trend that's going to increase. Uh, you know, as you probably know, we've, we've announced two public partnerships in the last two weeks, which were Customers Bank and Modern Bank. Um, and there are other ones, you know, that are under the radar, which aren't currently announced. And we think that trend is going to increase. Mm, that's interesting that you mentioned those two just like within the week. And it does seem to match up with uh, the World Fintech Report that has seen an acceleration in fintech partnerships. Um, but it also revealed that 70% of fintechs don't culturally or organizationally see eye to eye with their bank partner. And more than 70% of those fintechs say they are frustrated with the incumbents process bearers. Now, what advice would you give to these couples who are having a tiff? Is it just, you know, a tiny argument you can move past it? Or is this one that, you know, is for the ages, you know, it's too big, it's too explosive? 
what do you sort of give as advice to both scenarios? So just, you know, ones that are just a, a little tiff and ones that are actually, you know, bigger. Yeah, so it's, it, it is very difficult sometimes to work with banks. And if you're a small organization, obviously some banks will use their leverage over you to try and to try and, you know, get a deal that's completely unreasonable or sort of, you know, get you to concede things that you wouldn't normally concede. Like a classic thing for banks to do is to say, hey, you know, the intellectual property in this is obviously we own that, right? Because we're giving you all the ideas. You're just doing the things. So a really important piece of advice is try as far as possible. You mentioned the example of a, of a sort of tiff in a couple. So just like a tiff in a couple, you know, it, it really helps if you've had a prenup. You know, so it really helps if ahead of time you've kind of thought through some of these issues and and talked through. And and I've had this conversation multiple times, this exact conversation about IP, for example, where I go to a bank and say, you know, you may think you want to own this IP, but you're a bank. You're not a software company. And and what does owning the IP mean? It means you have to maintain it. That's an ongoing cost. You know, you don't really have any way to monetize this because it's not like any other bank is going to buy your IP uh, because they're a competitor. So, so you know, oftentimes when you talk it through, you you can explain to people, hey, I know you think you want this thing, but actually no. The second thing is, even though you're a small company, you kind of have to dig your heels in and and stand your ground and make sure that the deal is is actually feasible for you and that you can actually succeed. And explain to the bank, hey, look, you know, we want to build a lasting relationship. For that, it's important that we're actually able to build a profitable business. Otherwise, we won't be stable, et cetera. And just make sure that you understand those things. I think the other thing is you're looking for people in the bank who who are a bit insurgent, who are a bit crazy, who want to do something a little bit different, et cetera. And those are your, those are your kind of insiders who are going to help you if you're a fintech because there's lots of people at the you know at banks who who yearn to do something creative, something more interesting, etc. So you you're trying to identify those people. As a bank, I would I would sort of urge banks to obviously really use your due diligence, etc. On fintechs, make sure you're getting what you're what you're paying for, etc. But some of the sort of traditional purchasing mechanisms that banks use, etc., which are very zero sum you know, try and get the lowest possible price, et cetera, are not necessarily conducive to building a long-term partnership that's successful. So try to kind of look at what's really important and see if you can build a win-win where your partner becomes successful and you become successful through your partner. And and I think those things, if you find a sort of match where, you know, you've got a fintech who really cares about your customers, who's really passionate about solving your problem, they can be a long-term partner that's very, very helpful to you as a bank. Yeah, and speaking of long-term partners, um, some of these partnerships might actually end up to something a bit more. So we've seen um, the likes of Sophie and Galileo or Crown Agents Bank and Segovia, who used to partner on various products together, and all of a sudden, they are now in a merger. Uh, So do you think these partnerships are a prelude to a full-on acquisition? So I definitely think it can happen. And I think and it can often logically make sense, um, you know, as the relationship gets gets closer and closer over time. I think the you know what you've got to think ahead of time is what you're looking to get out. If the sum of the parts is greater than the than the two things separately, then a merger definitely makes sense. I think sometimes 
by by acquiring what happens to the bank is they actually lose the DNA of why they worked with a fintech in the first place because that fintech is no longer this kind of source of dynamism and innovation and and so on it's it's just another department within the bank and so i think there's a danger to acquisitions which sometimes you can end up with less than you started off with um for us we're not we're definitely not looking to be acquired by any of our partners um but i think it can for some fintechs make sense in the sense that you know, it can give you tremendous stability. Obviously, it's an exit for some of the early employees and the founders and so on. Um, that can be helpful. Um, so it sometimes definitely makes sense. Yeah, and it seems like one of the things that might be making sense as well with this whole situation is consolidation. Um, and I'm I'm now wondering with this potential recession, because there have been a lot of economists and commentators saying that they might be a potential recession, is there then room for consolidation at such a time or partnerships at such a time? Yeah, well, from my perspective, um, I definitely think so. And, and you know, we've thought prior to the crisis as well that a shakedown of some sort was probably going to happen. You know, I think it's natural for an ecosystem to go through these phases of sort of fragmentation and consolidation. So when things are too consolidated, then then people start new, like, uh, challenges and 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 new kind of uh, disruptive technologies that seek to kind of uh, break up the status quo and so on. And I think that's very healthy. Um, and then you know, as as the ecosystem becomes too fragmented, it makes sense for things to consolidate to reach a certain scale. I think the point that you made earlier on around um, around sort of fairness and accessibility in the economy plays into this because. What you don't want is an economy that's monopolized and dominated by a few players and favors certain types of people over certain other kinds of people and so on. What you want is an economy that's very healthily diverse and and so on, so that the best kind of solutions win out in the end. Um, and we think that, you know, specific to the recession, it's quite likely that there will be some consolidation. Um, for some fintechs, I think they need to really think through like what is the value prop that they have because i think a lot of uh, fintechs for a while i mean and tech companies in general you know there was the sort of this the scale at all costs uh, business plan where you just kind of keep doing additional rounds at higher and higher and higher valuations and eventually you ipo um based on a pure scale business model that that at no point kind of prior to ipo makes any money for anyone and i think that's highly risky and obviously you know, the recession, uh, if it comes, is going to um, really bite those kind of companies hard because, you know, in a recession, obviously everything shrinks. So even if you have a hyperscalable business in general, the economy as a whole is shrinking. So you're going to shrink. Uh, so that's going to be tough for some people. Yeah, well, hopefully, fingers crossed, um, it won't get to that point. But um, speaking of wishes and dreams, <laughs> I was now wondering what would be your ultimate dream partnership, like bank, like AI platform, conglomerate, fintech, who would be your dream boat partner? Yeah. So from our perspective, our dream partners are lenders who really want to support this missing middle of businesses that we think are underserved. So this is kind of like, you know, businesses who want to grow by by lending better and doing a better service for small and medium-sized businesses. 
that's our dream. So, you know, we had a great partnership with NIBC, for example, that's, you know, grown over time because we really very strongly aligned in terms of what we do as Oakmouth Bank and what we want to do as a platform and what they want to do. Um, so the, that's a, a perfect partnership. I, I don't think it's it's not a question of the scale of the bank. You know, there can be large banks that also want to do this thing um, or small banks. I think I think the, the key thing is having the right kind of ambition that you want to really support these um, businesses, which are the backbone of the economy, provide most of the employment, et cetera. Um, and, so, and so that's our dream, our dream partners, lenders who want to do that. So here we are at the final portion of the show and what you may have been waiting for, the fintech jail. This is where our guest submits a buzzword, a trend, technology, or even company that irks them and argues why they need to be put away for good. Sharon and I will then debate whether it deserves a place in the jail. So Sean, what do you think deserves to be put away for good? Put in solitary confinement, never to see the light of day, or a fintech conference speaker stage ever again? So... I'm going to put the phrase big data. Now, the reason for that, now I, so obviously, you know, it's been a massive innovation to be able to handle data analysis at huge scale with vast amounts of data and so on. Um, But I think the phrase big data became this incredible buzzword where all sorts of people were trying to um, use various technologies that have been designed for massive data uh, scale to do things that don't really need that, um, that weren't really appropriate. They were claiming that big data was going to solve all kinds of things. And I think data analysis, um, you know, big isn't always better. And, and you know, really the, the, the key thing with any kind of analysis is, is not the scale of the data or, or so on. It's, you know, the thoughtfulness and the robustness of your methodology and so on. So that's big data. Uh, yeah, that's an interesting one because I, I find uh, a very similar complaint I get from people who often deal with artificial intelligence and machine learning is that they say that bigger bigger data sets aren't always better. I mean, sure. And it's the same case as you'd rather have a uh, a structured set of good data than a huge vat of unstructured data it doesn't necessarily mean that the unstructured data will give you better insights if you have to spend ages uh, and tons of processing power in order to glean those insights. Whereas the the small data set of structured, if it's well collated and well and well put together, then it gives you a lot more um, value. Uh, I think big data is big data is, is a big buzzword. To be fair, to be throwing in there, we're going to have to find our biggest sell. But I mean, <laughs> what do you think, Sharon? Oh, big data. Now that is one that that is quite um, an interesting one because people do use it sometimes in like a a good way, like a way that you can understand what they're trying to convey. But yeah, I do agree with both of you. They they do overuse it and it does sort of teeter between the verge of, you know, just a catch all phrase when that's not exactly what it means. Um, they, They have said in the past that data is the new oil and look at where that is right now. So (laughs) <laughs> will it face the same fate <laughs> i don't think there are going to be people out there running to to buy data and you know hold it in some warehouse but um yeah i i would probably agree i would just give this one maybe like 
five years and then, you know, put it on parole somewhere, like a rehab center? <laughs> yeah, I mean, so I think the concept has merit. And like, there's definitely the case that you can do a lot, um, you know, with data. But also, I think one of the problems with the so-called big data um, trend has been the desire to use data for all kinds of things. And I think society hasn't necessarily caught up with all of the ramifications of having all of this data available, all the things that you can potentially do, you know, for good or evil by just being able to join all kinds of data together and so on. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's all part of this. I think, you know, clearly thoughtful analysis of very large scale data can be tremendously beneficial if done right. I mean, you know, one of the things is obviously there's a huge amount of data analysis associated with tracking how this COVID crisis is evolving and how infections are spreading and all that kind of stuff. And that's tremendously beneficial to society to do that. Um, but I think the phrase has been somewhat overused and, and overhyped by people who, who don't really um, understand what, it, what it's really getting at. So uh, from what I'm hearing, it sounds like it's not so much a uh, lock them up and throw away the key, but perhaps put them in a, a minimum security prison with some right. day release to, <laughs> go, to ch check on them every now and again. That's exactly what this is. A minimum security prison. I couldn't put it better myself. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think that the, the softest throwing into the fintech jail we've done so far, but it's going in there. So big data is not necessarily not seeing the light of day again, but you know, it's on parole. Well, that's all we have time for this episode. Uh, thanks to Sharon. Hey, thanks for having me. And Sean. Likewise. Thanks very much to, for having me. For joining us this week. Uh, before we sign off, though, uh, let's plug some socials, some products. Sean, as the guest, do you want to go first? Yeah. So follow Oak North on Twitter and, and on LinkedIn for all the developments around Oak North. Cool. Uh, Sharon, where can we find you online? You can find me on Twitter at Fintech Kits. That's Fintech and then K-I-T-S. And you can also find me on LinkedIn under my full name, Sharon Kits Kamathi. And you can just, you know, say hello or, you know, just say I, I like your stuff or maybe you don't like my stuff. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I'm, ha I'm happy either way. <laughs> All feedback welcome. Uh, and you can find me on Twitter at ADHamilton91 and on LinkedIn by searching my name. Uh, and only give me positive feedback, please. Uh, <laughs> that's all I want to hear. Uh, as for Fintech Futures, you can find us online at www.fintechfutures.com, on Twitter at, at Fintech Futures, and on LinkedIn just by searching Fintech Futures and looking for our gorgeous logo. If you like this podcast and our other episodes, please remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or your favorite podcasting service. Uh, we would also really appreciate it if you could help other listeners find us by writing a review or recommending us to a friend. Thank you very much for your support. Uh, we'll see you soon for another episode of What the Fintech. But until then, goodbye. Goodbye.